Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm Dan Snow. Today we're going to talk about the Renaissance. You've heard of it. An awakening, a rebirth. Did it exist? What was it? Why does everyone get so excited about the Renaissance? Aren't we living through a Renaissance now? Isn't there an explosion of learning, culture, art? Well, maybe not right now with COVID, but generally in this kind of period in which we're living. So I kind of wanted to get under the skin of a Renaissance. What exactly happened in the 15th and early 16th century in Italy? And the person I want to talk to is Mary Hollingsworth. She has written a book called Princes of the Renaissance, about the people that became the artistic patrons in that period. It was a really fun chat. We jump around a lot, a lot of bringing in different periods and ideas here. So I had a great time. I learned a lot. I hope you do too. If you want to come and listen to people like Mary Hollingsworth, wonderful historians who are at the top of their game and can tell us all about some of the most fascinating periods in history, please come along to our live tour, historyit.com slash tour. You'll be hearing from many of the wonderful voices you hear on this podcast. And of course, as ever, go and check out History Hit TV. It's a new history channel. All the plans we got this year. Guys, I can't wait to show you these plans. They're going to be so exciting. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now while you have the chance. Go to historyhit.tv, check out the new history channel. And you can also listen to all these podcasts way back into the past with no ads, because some of you tell me you find the ads very annoying, which I apologise. In the meantime, everyone, here is Mary Hollingsworth. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Who are the princes of the Renaissance? They are the people who are basically responsible for the Renaissance. And they are the people who commissioned all the buildings and all the art that we think of as the real Renaissance art. And they are the ones that are not the Medici because the Medici at this stage were not princes. Well, that's what I'm very interested in, because from your book, I get the impression that the use of the word prince is quite interesting, isn't it, here? Was this a time of a power lying in the hands of the hereditaries of dynastic families? But some of them are kind of self-made, aren't they? Well, yes, but they were self-made with the intention of becoming dynasties. So the Swartzers are the ones that come from nowhere, if you like, but beat up to become princes, become dukes in 1450. But the Medici don't become dukes until 1537. Or 1532, it's a slightly sort of dodgy. When did they actually get the title 1532-37? So anyway, so they're not 15th century dynasties. They're just rich bankers, enablers. Quite useful. Very useful indeed. Everyone <laughs> needs a rich banker. Exactly. You just talked to the British kings and politicians in the 18th century. So Mary, what comes first with Renaissance? What do we need to talk about first? Was this a time when traditional elites were being replaced by rich bankers and merchants? Or is there something going on here? No, no, it's definitely different. Rich bankers are just enablers. The, it's a time when 
all the princes of Italy. So these are all dynastic. They're marquises, dukes, cardinals count as princes because they have the same social status as princes. And they are reinventing themselves as the heirs to the Italy of ancient Rome. So not as a united empire, but I don't think any of them, possibly Alfonso of Aragon, had ambitions to rule the world. But most of them were just using the Roman heritage that they all have to promote themselves as emperors. And that's a bit simplistic, but that's why they had began to adopt the language, the artistic language of ancient Rome to display their power, which is at this point is completely different from what's going on north of the Alps outside Italy. So this is, you know, the equivalent of perpendicular and the various decorated forms of Gothic are what is a normal north of the Alps. Whenever I talk to other medieval, early medieval historians, they find the Renaissance quite troubling because they talk about the Carolingian Renaissance. They talk about the Renaissance that went on in Paris a couple hundred years before. What's going on that's different here, south of the Alps in this period? And why does it happen? I would say the interesting point you bring up is the Carolingian Renaissance, because of course it's doing exactly the same. The Carolingians were reviving the concept of empire. They did have much more political aims and grandeur, if you like, in terms of scale. But Charlemagne was the first Holy Roman, key word, emperor. So that was reviving the older pattern of imperial Rome right then. 12th century Renaissance is something that happens in large parts right across Europe. I mean, the difference with this is that it's Italian. And in a sense, the Italians had a much easier claim. They could see ancient Rome in all their cities. I mean, apart from the ruins of ancient Rome, there's an amphitheatre in Verona. That was there. You know, there are arches and bridges and things right across northern Italy. There were coins in the fields. Farmers would be digging up, ploughing up coins with their oxen every year. It was part of their heritage. And that is the difference. And is it caused, if that's the right word? I mean, is it the interplay of global politics, if you like, we've people talk about the Greek scholars coming over from Constantinople after the fall of that city in the early 1450s, but just the political, the cultural soil was ready to receive that crop, that seed, was it? I think that's a very good way of putting it. I really do. I like that analogy, the idea that it was something in the right place at the right time. I think the other point you've got to remember is not only did that mean an awful lot more scholars, Greek Orthodox scholars, but also Latinists as well as Greek specialists moving to Italy just to leave the conquered Constantinople, if you like. But also the popes come back from Avignon, come back to Italy in 1415, 1417. I mean, they don't really settle in Rome until the 1420s. But that's the point at which the papacy becomes Italian. And the focus of the popes is Italy. And then the focus of all their foreign rulers, we're talking Francis I and Charles V, their focus is on getting Italy for themselves. And that's a slightly different issue. But it's quite a key point that the return of the papacy to Rome marks a very significant piece of the jigsaw that's just one of the little extra bits of detail that all happen to be in the right place at the right time. I was very struck in the book that you talk about war, which so many of us think is a kind of antithesis of Botticelli and Michelangelo's art. But war is clearly hugely important. And is it war that's changing these power structures and then these new people in power are desperate to surround themselves with the trappings of civilization to enhance the legitimacy following the luck or fate they've had on the battlefield? Well, the people who start off the Renaissance, the sort of two earliest patrons that are quite significant patrons, they are both established. And that's chapter two, which I deal with Leonello d'Este and Sigismondo Malatesta. Those two are both mercenaries by job, if you like, but they control their own states. But it's the people who come up after them, like the Swartzers, who are imitating 
what princely behaviour was that gives a bit of impetus to the whole movement. There's that long, oft-lamented way in which dynasties, the first one is the kind of hard-bitten soldier. Is it Ibn Khaldun in the Middle East talks about this, and then the ones that follow become interested in culture and art? Absolutely. No, it's really fascinating. And you just watch them. And then the really interesting thing is watching how the ones who are really the hardworking soldiers, how they adapt to becoming politicians, because not all of them do. And it is quite interesting. It's two completely different skills. A skill on the battlefield is not the same skill in a council chamber or of diplomats and that kind of thing. But that's another thing that comes out of the Renaissance is diplomacy, which is something that people don't often think about, but it's effectively, Francesco Sforza wanted to know what was going on in each court in Italy. He established full-time ambassadors at the court in Rome and in Florence and in particularly in Venice. Milan versus Venice was an important part of the power struggle in northern Italy. That's the other thing is, of course, there's the power struggle within Italy for control of different smaller states, bigger states. Everybody wanted to be bigger, obviously. And the popes wanted to be dynasties. That's another important point. So the popes set themselves up as dynasties and some of them failed and some of them worked. It was proliferation and competition. The more you could, the better you were, the grander you were. Why is art important? Because that sounds familiar, you know, perhaps within the Greek city-state system of the ancient world. People are competing. Why don't they just invest all their money in spears and breastplates and artillery pieces? Why does art and architecture become important in this game of thrones? I ought to have called the book Game of Thrones. <laughs> I think it might, have, um, it might have been trademarked. I'm just slightly nervous about that. I think it might have been. Um, Princess of the Renaissance is also it's a board game, apparently. <laughs> but anyway, let's not worry about that. It's very difficult to say why they didn't just buy more breastplates. I suppose in one sense, there is the classical world that is what they're trying to revive. It's not just the fighting, but also the culture. You could read Pliny's letters and you know that you could be in Rome and be in the middle of the politics. So you could be fighting, you know, people and people, soldiers who could be fighting, but also you have your luxury life of living in your villa surrounded by servants and your winter dining rooms and your summer breakfast rooms and all the rooms facing whichever the best way was for light and heat. And all these things mattered in an era where you didn't have central heating. You had to do the best you could. You wouldn't have a north-facing winter bedroom, would you? <laughs> no, that's a terrible plan. Funny enough, I am funny enough, I am sleeping in a north-facing room at the moment because we're having some work done and it's absolutely freezing and it's unbelievable. I'd be a very bad prince of the Renaissance. If you built your own house from the ground up, I think you would probably decide, maybe I won't have it on that side of the house. Maybe I'll have it on this side. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about the Renaissance with Mary Hollingsworth. More after this. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And art is central to politics, is it? It's a central visual adjunct, if you like, and it's a way of saying who you are. So, I mean, just at a very basic level, if you're receiving somebody, a foreign dignitary, just out of respect, you'd put his coats of arms up and you'd probably put yours up. And then you might want to show that you claim descent from so-and-so, so-and-so, Emperor Augustus or Troy. Quite a few people claim to be descended from Kit Priam. <laughs> but that's another thing. It's not just artists and sculptors. It's also literary. It's also poets. So Ariosto writes endless poetry explaining why the Este family are descended from Troy. It's a broad cultural sweep, but the visual side of it was critical because, after all, it is all about display. The richer you are, the richer you looked. You had to show, you did, you still do. I was just thinking of Tiger Woods in a custom-made SUV, the accident that he had, and this is an incredibly expensive car with all the sort of possible extras. And I suddenly thought, you know, that is just exactly, if he was a Renaissance prince, he would have the most expensive horse with the most expensive comparisons. And you'd have details, you'd have your own coats of arms and your own little emblems and your own history, in inverted commas, that went back, your descent to prove your antiquity and to prove your value, your power. It's a show-off world. Think of horses like sports cars or SUVs now. I ride a bicycle, so I need to really up my game on this one. Um, Mary, what always fascinates me about Italy during the Renaissance is you think about other cultures enjoying a kind of extraordinary cultural scientific flowerings, the Dutch in the 17th century, the Brits in the 18th, 19th, the Americans in the second half of the 20th century, or the Tang Dynasty, the flowering that you see there in China, Mughal, India, you assume that that goes hand in hand with hard imperial power. So you conquer everybody else, you enforce a kind of Pax Romana, Pax Britannica, and then you have a lovely flowering because you can invest all your money in artists and people flock from all over the world to Lisbon or London or Amsterdam. But what's going on in Italy? It's incredibly violent. These states are actually quite transient. And yet you've got this going on at the same time. So what's going on there? War wasn't 24-7 in Italy. It was seasonal. So you only fought during the summer. So you stopped fighting from October to March. And perhaps that's when you thought about designing your palaces. But I think, to be honest, the two went hand in hand in Italy, and that is quite significant. We don't pay enough attention to their interest in military culture. And when I was writing this book, I've been studying this period for decades, and even I didn't realise quite how much military material there was. And a lot of the princes themselves wrote treatises on how to fight wars. And they read everything that was going in the classical world, in the modern world. I don't think they got as far as the Chinese books of war, but war is part of their display. The whole thing about the warfare, though, warfare changes around 1500, around 1494. There's suddenly artillery means that the damage you can inflict on somebody suddenly changes. It's suddenly brutal in a way that shooting with crossbows and longbows isn't quite the same brutality. 
So you've got to rebuild all your fortresses. Once you've got artillery attacking your fortresses, it's no good having little battlements. You've got to have a whole new system of bastions, for example. A lot of the architects, and particularly a lot of them I mentioned in the book, for example, Leonardo, are employed to design angular bastions that will counter, that will protect ducal palaces and ducal castles from assault by the new weapons which were coming in from the north. It's really the invasion of Charles VIII of France, which is 1494, Yes, with his huge artillery train. Exactly, exactly. Which must have been staggering. They looked at it and just went, oh my God. We've got a problem here. We've got a problem. We've got a real problem. I think I've probably misrepresented Dutch, British, American and Chinese power because, of course, those were also very violent cultures, but the violence was going away on a frontier. It was going on somewhere else. But actually, you're right. If you look at someone like Brunel in 19th century Britain, he was building lots of amazing things, but he was also working for the government, building military-related things. So I guess there isn't as much difference as I thought. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And so it's seen as engineering, architecture, art, and then battlefield ornamentation. It's all closer than it might feel to us now. Yes. If you were a painter, you might well train as a painter and end up designing fortresses. Francesco Di Giorgio did exactly that. And he also became a hydraulics expert and he had to work out how to get a siege-proof water supply to Siena, which I don't know whether you've been to Siena, but it's on the top of a hill during siege conditions. You can't go out with your little bucket. But there's an internal system for getting the water into the city, which was designed around 1500 by this man who trained as a painter. If you train as a painter, you train as draftsman, so you learn about drawing. You know, it's an old-fashioned skill painting. You learned technique and you learned how to use colour and how to draw, basically, and how to see. And you started out doing architectural backgrounds before you got on doing people's fingers and faces. And we think about even so many of today's quote-unquote civilian, you know, the internet is absolutely a product of US military spending in the second half of the 20th century. And buying up microprocessors and things. Coming out to these princes that you mentioned, it was quite a turbulent time. They were likely to be turfed off these thrones and their kids were as well. It didn't strike me that this giant investment in art and, and things, it wasn't necessarily money well spent on one level, was it? Well, it was for some. For some, it was very well spent. So Federico Gonzaga, who built the Palazzo Te in Mantua, and it's absolutely stunning. It is quite awesome. That was designed very much to host Charles V, when he was travelling through Italy, he was being crowned in Bologna, that's the emperor, but he spends a month at Mantua in this palace or in the hills around doing lots of hunting. And he gets a close ally. He gets promoted from Marquis to Duke for a start. And the other person who benefits, of course, is Titian, because Titian then gets to meet Charles V. And once Charles V had seen what Titian could do, which he did in Mantua, that was it. Titian became Charles V's and then Philip II's court painter. Well, I don't blame them. I wish it was my court painter. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Does the Renaissance ever stop or does the Renaissance just sort of bleed straight into this kind of explosion of art, science, engineering, culture that goes into the 17th, 18th centuries? I think it did continue, but just not in the same lines as we would quite like to think, because, of course, the Reformation totally changes everything. Europe becomes a very different place. And that's the point at which Italy, largely because of the Inquisition, and the fact that the papacy was based in Rome, Italy's largely free of Protestantism. There are a lot of Protestants in Venice and in some of the northern Italian courts like Ferrara, but basically they didn't have a Protestant movement like they did in the empire or in France. And then the religious wars of the second half of the 16th century take place largely in northern Europe. That is a very large generalisation. But the pressure comes off 
Italy. But then, of course, you have the Counter-Reformation. So then you have this huge flowering of ideas of a slightly different sort, which takes place in Italy. And those beautiful Baroque churches, they're just like, hold on, these dour Protestants, let's just dial it up to 11 here. Exactly. Fill this church up. I mean, I just love those churches. The interior of St. Peter's with the Bernini tabernacles, with the twisting columns covered with the Barberini bees in gold. I mean, the idea of that being in a Protestant church, it just doesn't. So... Yeah, and we're much poorer for it here in this patch of Northern Europe that we're in. Is Renaissance kind of what happens to us humans in the absence of like giant total war or ecological or environmental disasters? You know, so are they just doing what humans do when they've just got a bit of breathing space? Yes, that's what I was going to say. And the bigger the pressure has been, the bigger the reaction will be. So I suppose... World War I had a massive impact on intellectual life of Europe. World War II, big impact as well, I think. And I'm sure the pandemic's going to have... There must be a sense of release and relief that the danger is over. But I'm not sure that it's relief that is the basis of the Renaissance. But having said that, I suppose there's an element of suddenly, wow, we can do something. Yeah, it just strikes me that there's periods... Even if you look on a very small scale in southern England, Alfred the Great's court, he establishes, even though he's at war all the time, there is a place in which you can start creating. It's not also all hands to the pumps the whole time. you know. So if you look at the Islamic conquest of North Africa and into Spain, the day job is kind of fighting and trying to keep your world in order. And I just wonder if these Italian, they managed to carve out space as we've done today and hopefully will continue doing despite the imminent environmental catastrophe, where we just allow creativity to flourish because we're pretty creative people. And if you give us a bit of wriggle room, we're going to start creating stuff. I know, and we always have been as well. We've been like this from the cavemen. I was reading just recently about the... the um, I can't remember what the catastrophe was. It was some sun radiation bombardment. And the people that survived were the ones that went to live in caves. And that's why they started painting the walls with all the animals that they could remember. <laughs> Really? It's an interesting idea. If you're suddenly locked up in a cave, you couldn't go outside except very rarely, you probably would spend your time painting everything. Well, me and my family have been locked inside during this pandemic and during the winter months, and we've adorned our house with pictures (laughs) of famous historical figures drawn by the kids. So there you go. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Proof. It's a long way from the cavemen and, in fact, Leonardo. Well, thank you. That conversation spiraled out of control brilliantly. Mary, your wonderful book is called... The Princes of the Renaissance. Prince of the Renaissance. Go and get it, everybody. It's such an interesting book and such an interesting period. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. Hi, everyone. Thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms. But anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds 
of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.